The New York Times is a newspaper that has evolved into a digital publication. Across its 166-year history, the Times has been known for long-form journalistic quality, in addition to its ability to quickly churn out news content. Some content on the New York Times is old but timeless evergreen content. Readers of the New York Times' website are not only looking for the most recent breaking news. They want to know what the headlines were the day after Pearl Harbor. They want to read editorials about Martin Luther King. Over the last 30 years, New York Times has moved itself online, bringing old material with it. Since the 90s, several different content management systems, CMSs, have been used by journalists within the Times to publish material. These different sources of content store data in different formats. This is a data management problem. Users want to search over the entire history of articles published by the Times, which means that the Times needs to unify these articles in a single index. These are articles from the 1920s that were digitized using OCR, Optical Character Recognition. They're articles from 1998 that were written on a legacy CMS. And they're articles from 2017 that use the latest CMS. Berge Svingen is the Director of Engineering at New York Times, and he wrote about this problem and its solution on Medium. This story describes the flexibility of Apache Kafka, in contrast to the applications of Kafka as a place to buffer high volumes of data, the New York Times uses Kafka as a place to unify data and allow for other specific materialized views to be built on top of it. We have covered Kafka in the past with interviews of some of its creators, including Jay Kreps and Neha Narkete, and you can find these old episodes by downloading the Software Engineering Daily app for iOS or for Android. With these apps, we're building a new way to consume content about software engineering, and they're open-sourced at github.com slash softwareengineeringdaily. If you're looking for an open-source project to get involved with, we would love to get your help. The special thing about these apps is that they have all of our old content, not just a limited subset of the episodes like you will find in podcast players. So with that, let's get to this episode. Berge Svinkin is the Director of Engineering at the New York Times. Berge, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. The New York Times is a newspaper that has evolved into a digital publication, and today we're going to talk about some of the infrastructure that has contributed to that evolution. Give us some history on the different ways that stories have been published on the New York Times over the years as it has evolved into a digital publication. So, so that that that's a much bigger story than uh, I can tell, since obviously I have not been there for most of that uh, history. But we we so it it the New York Times is a little over 160 years old. For most of that period, we only published on paper. We started producing content in a digital did producing it in a digital digital form, still printing it in the 60s, I think. And we now have the original uh, digital versions starting in 1980. Uh, so e everything before that, or almost everything before that, has been uh, OCR'd. Mm, okay. Uh, for the digital uh, okay. versions we have now. 
So it got it got digitized using optical character recognition, where something scanned the text and it was turned into a digital version. Yes, and and then starting in '96, uh, we got the website. So for a long time, the website had content that had been created originally for paper and then uh, adapted to the website. Uh, and then starting, I. Th- I think in 2006, we changed to a web-first approach where things were produced for the website first and then also would go to to print. Well, everybody knows the New York Times. It's a well-respected newspaper, and you've got all this old content, and people are still reading the old content under different circumstances. They're also reading the new content, of course. How do the access patterns of the different ages of content, like the older content versus the newer content, how do those access patterns differ? Do you need to be able to readily serve people with the same latency of uh, a request to an old document as you do to a new document? So yes, it's served the same way. So you you can go to the website and get any article published since, since the beginning in 1851. So there's obviously a long tail here, right? The the very a, a very big majority of what's being viewed is from the last uh, couple of weeks. But then we have we have a good amount of traffic for the older stuff, uh, and so, some of it has has a lot more traffic than others. So, for instance, we have we have a lot of important historical events like like the the Civil War and, and basically everything since uh, mm-hmm. that that people go back and look at. So for for re- research reason, uh, historians use it, and there's also uh, a, a lot of entertainment value in, in reading some of this old stuff. So we, we have a we, we have a Twitter account called NYT Archives that uh, publishes stuff from the archives every day, uh, mm-hmm. which can be a lot of fun. And also a service called Times Machine uh, you can use to go back and look at the old stuff. The reason I wanted to talk to you on this episode is because you wrote about using Kafka at the New York Times to solve a very specific problem, and I think this is a great description of a top-down problem statement and technical solution. So I want to start getting into why Kafka was a meaningful technology as you were implementing this solution, Uh, and the solution is essentially how do you create a system where this content from all these different data sources in, in in a huge span of historical record, how do you make sure that all of these are accessible to people who want to ex- access the content? And all of this content is in different CMS databases, it's in the archives, it's in on these other data sources, and you'd like to get it all into at least a single interface. Maybe it doesn't need to get all into one place. Maybe it just needs to get into a, a place, you know, in its disparate sources and you just put an API in front of it. We'll talk about those different approaches that you could take to presenting a unified interface over all of these different content sources. But before we get there, I think I'll just spoil it and say that Kafka is part of the solution. And I think we should run through Kafka a little bit so that people are familiar with it. Um, for listeners who do not remember our previous shows on Kafka or they haven't heard them, give an overview for what the technology does. So, so Kaf- Kafka is in principle very simple. It, it's an append-only file on disk. 
so Kafka producers will write to the end of that file. Uh, consumers can uh, read from any point of the file, so they can start at the beginning, they can start somewhere in the middle, or they can just consume uh, new data as it's coming in. And what Kafka does is make make this distributed, so you can have replicas uh, of your logs for redundancy, and you can partition your log uh, for scaling uh, reads and writes. But in, it, it, it's basically just a log that you write data to and, and then read it back in the same order. Mm -hmm. And that, that term log, you're not referring to like a logging system where uh, crashes and errors are happening and you're logging them. It's a log of records, right? Like maybe you want to disambiguate that term? Yes, so you, you can use it for that case as well. But, but yes, it, 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 a log in, in, this, in, in this sense is just a totally ordered list of content where, where, you all, where you have a file you're always appending to, so you get a totally ordered record. Mm -hmm. And Kafka is a, it's a pub-sub system. It's about producers and consumers. So it's not just about reading from the entire file you might have sections of the, the this long file that are labeled as a particular channel and producers might publish to that channel consumers might consume from that channel so that they can read a subset of the information what else would you like to say about producers and consumers in the context of kafka so it's it's fairly straight Forward. So, like you were saying, a, a Kafka producer writes to the end of a file. And the abstraction is in Kafka for this is a topic. Uh, so a, a topic is basically a log. Producers write to specific topics. Topics can also be partitioned, which means that you partition them based on some key. The, the default is just to use, the, use a basic hash of the key for each record, which means that you can distribute this on multiple files for scaling. Mm -hmm. For a consumer, a Kafka consumer has an offset. So, so basically everything written to the Kafka topic uh, has an offset, which is just a count from the beginning. It's, it's a record count from the start of that partition. And a consumer has a current offset. So the consumer can maintain that uh, itself or it can let Kafka maintain it uh, for you. And the way this works is that when a consumer starts up, it will start consuming from its current offset. Uh, when it processes a bunch of records from Kafka, it will then uh, commit a new offset, uh, which is how far it's gotten so far. And, 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 and that's why it's also arguable uh, whether we should look at Kafka as a pub subsystem because in most pub subsystems you deal with individual messages and you're acting individual messages with Kafka you don't a Kafka consumer will act a specific offset and, and basically saying I've seen everything up until this point so there's, there's oh. no concept in Kafka of acting a message mm. okay in the case of the New York Times the use case that we're going to get into is that Kafka serves as the system of record for all of the published content. The producers of the content, you mentioned the producer term, are the CMS databases, the archives, the other data sources where people are publishing information. How does this data from all these different data sources, how does it get into Kafka? 
so so for, first of all just just to clarify what we mean by published content in this case is that this is content that has been uh, written and edited and is ready for consumption so th this does not apply to uh, any content that's still being edited in the, in the CMS it's only when it's considered ready for the public uh, that it actually goes into into the system and the way this works is that we have a uh, protobuf uh, schema so google protocol buffers uh, which defines every uh, so we we have a schema for every type of content you can publish and we have a service called the gateway uh, which validates ev everything you're trying to publish according to that schema so all all the producers need to create that protobuf binary it will send that as a publish request to the gateway if it validates they will get a publish uh, response back and what we call a publish event will be written to the actual Kafka log, which is then a not another protobuf binary that wraps the actual asset with some additional metadata. And as soon as it's there, it can then be consumed uh, by, by anyone. And once this data is in Kafka, it is again in a file that is sitting on disk. Is that correct? Or does any of it get pulled into memory? It's stored on disk, but the way Kafka works is that it uses the OS page cache, which means that when, when multiple consumers are always consuming the latest offset, uh, most of them will be actually reading it from the page cache, which means that Kafka scales very well for a high number of consumers that are all reading the latest stuff. That's cool. So I actually, I'm, I, maybe this is a dumb question, but the page cache, that is an in-memory structure? Yes. Okay, got it. So there's consumers, like you said, that want to pull this data from Kafka. And if it's getting accessed by a bunch of people, it gets into the page cache, so the memory access is faster. What are the systems that want to pull data out of Kafka? Are there a bunch of different types of systems, or is it just... I'm sitting down to read an article, and uh, I read it from Kafka, essentially. So, so we, we, we have a range of different systems. So first of all, all the systems doing this now are back-end systems. So, so for instance, native apps do not read directly from Kafka, and I, I don't know if they ever will. And, and, and we have a range of different systems. So, so for, for, first of all, we have a system we call uh, Bodega which is basically a store of the latest version of every, every published asset. So Bodega just consumes Kafka continuously uh, and makes every asset available for fast lookup. Uh, and when asset, you go, asset meaning like images and stuff? It can be an image, it can be an article, uh, it can be a, a, any piece of content that goes onto Kafka. For images, we're not storing the actual image binary in Kafka, it's on only metadata. And uh, when you're reading an article on the web page or in the native apps, it, it comes uh, from Bodega. I see. Uh, th then, then we have uh, a number of feed generators reading from Kafka to generate feeds. So a lot, a lot of our content goes out to, to third parties. Uh, so you, so Bodega is an example of a materialized view where you have the ser that is the, the serving uh view of content and images and all kinds of other things that when the a front end client makes a request to the New York Times the the data that goes into 
an article that the person is eventually going to read on the internet is just all getting aggregated from Bodega. Yes, that is, that is correct. Then an, an, another example of a consumer is our uh, search uh, clusters. We have, have an elastic, elastic search cluster, which ha- handles both site search uh, and, and, and a number of other use cases. We also have what we call uh, list services, uh, so ba- basically different services that consume the log and use that information to create lists of content. So, for instance, if you go to the science section and you see a list of all the latest science stories, that that's created uh, by a list service. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. So, so in, 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 in that case, the actual members of the list uh, come from the list service, whereas the actual article comes from uh, Bodega. So there is uh, a couple types of things I'd like to go through. So when, when you first stood up this Kafka solution, you had to pull in all of the old data into Kafka because... Kafka was a new system that wasn't around when the Civil War occurred. Uh, so you pull in all this old legacy articles and stuff into Kafka, and then you've got also new articles that get published. So you've got some back-end content management system, and when a journalist is writing an article and they finish it and they click publish, it gets sent to Kafka, and then you've got materialized views that need to update at some point. You've got an Elasticsearch cluster. You've got Bodega, which needs to serve the article whenever uh, a user goes to NewYorkTimes.com. You've got this list uh, system that aggregates lists of articles. So if I want to go find all the articles about relationships between fat consumption and weight loss, then maybe I need to go to a list that is a materialized view. Are there different SLAs on how these lists are, how these different materialized views are getting created? What is the system of keeping those materialized views up to date to assist a, a a period where you want them to, because obviously, if you were polling Kafka all the time to update the Elasticsearch cluster, that might be a a process that is compute resource intensive. So maybe you just want to have a regularly scheduled system that is looking at Kafka and saying, "Oh, are there any changes? There have been changes. We should pull those into Elasticsearch." So, so first of all, all these consumers do uh, consume from Kafka continuously. Okay. Uh, so it go, goes directly into Elasticsearch and all, all, all these other systems. And, and the SLAs for this is different for different systems. So, so for all the really important things, like, like when an article is updated, uh, our SLA is one second. So basically one, one second after the editor clicks publish, uh, the latest version has to be available on the site which means that it has to go through Kafka, it has to go uh, be consumed from Kafka uh, into Bodega and then made uh, available. Sa- same thing with things like, like the list service. When something is updated, it has to go out uh, very fast. And, and that influences the kind of systems we can use for these different things. So for instance, the, the main list service we have is implemented using Postgres. Uh, and, and, and the way it works is that 
everything on Kafka is published in a normalized way. Uh, so you have articles referencing images, for, for instance, where the image is published separately. Uh, that is consumed into a similar normalized model uh, in Postgres. And then whenever something is published, we trigger on the types of lists that this thing uh, now became a member of, uh -huh. uh, which means that we can make lists available on a uh, with a very low latency. Whereas for something like Elasticsearch, we need to have a, a denormalized model. So when, when you put something in Elasticsearch, it's basically one big uh, JSON, which means that if we want to be able to search on the caption of the image, that image has to go into the article object uh, in Elasticsearch. And that means that to create that denormalized model, there might be delays. So, so for instance, a, what, one of the types of assets we're publishing is tags uh, that, that specif specify the concepts in an article. So, so for instance, all uh, articles about New York will be tagged uh, with New York. Uh, and if one of those tags are updated, then that means we have to go into Elasticsearch and update every document that references that tag, uh -huh. uh, which means that it's very hard. We, we, we can't maintain uh, an SLA of one second uh, in, in Elasticsearch because of that normalized model, which means that we can only use Elasticsearch for things like site search where that is less important because if a new article doesn't show up for a search in a minute, say, then that, that, that's fine. Mm -hmm. This term, SLA, that we've both mentioned, I want to point out for people who don't know, is service-level agreement, and that's essentially if you work at a big enough company, you have different people who are accessing different systems, and these different systems will oftentimes say, we have an SLA, we have a service level agreement that we're going to get your response back to you in one second or five seconds or a millisecond. Uh, it, it's just a term used at big tech companies sometimes. The approach of Kafka, where you decided to centralize the system of record within Kafka, this is not the only solution that you could have taken. You 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 were essentially faced with the problem where You've got lots of old data sources, and I have seen solutions at other companies where when they have legacy APIs that they want to update or they want to bring a degree of consistency between those legacy APIs, they stand up a another API in between those legacy APIs and all of the consumers of those legacy APIs so that they get a unified API that is papering over the past. And you you have this in some sense in the gateway, because you have a gateway that sits in front of Kafka and validates that anybody who's publishing to Kafka is compliant with the Kafka schema that all of the other consumers are going to read from Kafka later on. So if you've got that gateway why wouldn't you just make an API-based approach and you know not have to maintain this huge Kafka cluster? Then you could just have, you know, if Elasticsearch wants to update, Elasticsearch can just ping all of the legacy data sources and the new data sources through a unified API. 
what's what's the problem with the approach of the API based unification? So, so the, the, this is similar to the system we did have earlier, where we had a lot of different APIs. Uh, and yes, we, we could have created uh, a common API to sit in front of all of these things, but the, the, there would be a number of problems with that. So, so for, 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 first of all, th- those APIs would be limited by the underlying technology uh, in, in each uh, producer or content. Uh, so, so, for, so for instance, if we uh, want to be able to to t- t- take the Elasticsearch example and go uh, and just get all the data and create a new index in Elasticsearch, uh, that would require all those data sources to support APIs for somehow streaming data, uh, which most databases don't do uh, very well. Uh, and our existing systems use, use uh, common databases like, like My, MySQL and MongoDB uh, and, and a few other things. Uh, and there's not really any easy way to go to MySQL and say, give, give me everything uh, and then keep giving me everything new uh, and have that perform well. Uh, so ba- basically, all the producers behind the API gateway would have to support that functionality. The API gateway wouldn't give you that for free. Also, in, in that set- setup, the producers would have to live forever. They basically have to maintain the data storage forever. A- any CMS that ever produced content will learn how to live on so that they can still get requests through that API gateway. Uh, whereas when we put things in Kafka, that is the source of truth of published content, which means that all this, the old CMS systems that have archived data can then just be thrown away. We don't need them anymore. They, we don't need to maintain those APIs. Uh, so it simplifies things quite a lot for, for that reason. Uh, and, and, and in general, the, the, the main thing we're looking for here, here in Kafka is the ability to do replay of data. So basically say, start at this point and just give me everything, which, which Kafka serves uh, very well. Why is Kafka better at doing that than, for example, a, just a big MySQL database of all the information? So, so f- first of all, if, if you, so you, 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 you can do a select star on MySQL and get everything out. That doesn't really perform very well. Uh, what you can do is take an actual dump and dump that to the file and export that to some other system and import it. The problem is that while you're doing this, things change in the database, uh, which means that the snapshot you made immediately is outdated, uh, which means that as soon as you're done, you then have to go back and do a smaller one for everything that changed. Mm. Uh, and you have to keep doing that, and eventually you'll you'll end up uh, doing a lot of select just to get the latest thing, which which does just doesn't perform well. Mm-hmm. Uh, de- mo- mo- most databases are not made to solve that use case. They're 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 made to serve specific queries. Okay, so can you talk a, contrast a little bit more between use cases where people might want to use a database versus when people might want to use Kafka? Because Kafka. This log-structured data store has become such a common piece of infrastructure in large companies 
I mean, arguably, it's become not as common as a database, but uh, it's it's become, become extremely common. But I think there's still a lot of people who probably don't know about it or, or what it does. Uh, maybe you could just contrast the use cases, generalize the use cases a little bit more. When do you want Kafka? Where do you want Kafka uh, relative to when you want a database? So, so I, I, I think the easiest way of approaching that is to talk about the concept of a log-based architecture. Uh, so so it, it, it's basically a different way of architecting a system. Uh, and and log-based architectures have been championed by my Martin Klapman, who I think he also ha- had on the show earlier. He's coming uh, back on soon. Oh, nice. And the, the basic idea here is that in the database, uh, you have uh, a transaction log. Uh, where ba- basically every update is written to the transaction log, and then the actual update is made in the database. Uh, and in, in most databases, that's just a way of an- ensuring uh, that every change actually happens, even if the database crashes throughout an operation. Uh, wh- what you do with a log-based architecture is essentially that you extract uh, that transaction log uh, and makes that your so- source of truth. Which is why this is also often referred to as the as an inverted database. And what that means is that instead of storing the resulting changes from something that happens, you're storing the events themselves in in the logs. So you you basically have one big ordered event log of of things of, of events, things that happen, and and then you put your actual uh, database as a consumer of that log. And and that 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 gives you a lot of advantages over over a regular database, mm. because you da- you so you you're still using a database because there's a lot of things you can't do with the log right you you can't do a lookup of a of a specific object from a log because you would have to seek the whole log to find it you can't do any advanced querying the only thing you can do with the log is just read it sequentially so I think you know followers of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, this might sound familiar to them because in Bitcoin, you've got a super long list of all the transactions that have ever occurred in Bitcoin. Uh, And if you're a full node on the Bitcoin network, you pull off the entire list of transactions so that you have a statement of history and other people have that statement of record as well so that you can have a shared view of the history of the world. And Kafka, I mean if if you look if you think about like the the Bitcoin blockchain that is a ton of data and and then you look at oh okay well that, that maybe that kind of makes sense for com- you know companies themselves which I don't know how the the size of the New York Times's Kafka cluster compares to the Bitcoin blockchain. Eventually I'm sure the Bitcoin blockchain will be longer. Well, actually, I don't, I don't even know about that. But in, in any case, you can you can maintain a distributed ledger of all of these records. This is this is a, a doable uh, engineering problem. It's not like it's so much data that you can't maintain a distributed record. So it's so it's definitely very useful because you know if 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 you just want to have this entire historical record of every event that has happened within the New York Times systems, then 
you can pull you can pull all kinds of operational views off of that like we mentioned those materialized views that fit different access patterns so do you want to talk a little bit more about the the, the operational advantages of working with a log based architecture yeah so 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 part of the problem with using a traditional database as as your long-term store is that once you have that database it becomes very hard to change because it's it's hard to make big changes to a database schema, database schema without uh, downtime and it also becomes hard to replicate changes from a database so so like i mentioned earlier most databases don't support any easy way of just getting everything in the database to, to another system. And what that means is that databases very easily become monoliths uh, that you can't get rid of because they have uh, all, all your important data uh, and it's too hard to get it out uh, somewhere else. Uh, which I, I ironically means that databases are actually not that good for storing data uh, permanently. <laughs> Whereas if you use a log-based architecture instead, uh, your database just becomes a derived store. It, it's a materialized view of what's on the log, uh, which means that if you want to change the schema in your database, uh, you can create a new database with a different schema and then just replay the entire log into that new database and then start switching your, your database consumers over to use the new database instead of the old one, uh, which makes it much, much easier to change things. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it also means that you can have multiple databases instead of trying to have one database that should serve everyone. Every system can have its own database, its own materialized view that contains specifically the data that system needs in the form they need it in. The goal here was to create a log-based architecture, and Kafka is not the only product that you could use to get a log-based architecture. I said product, I should have said open-source project that can also be purchased as a product. There are these managed options like Google PubSub and AWS Kinesis. How does Kafka compare to these? So, so my argument is that those systems can't actually be used to make a log-based architecture. So, and I've, 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 had, I've had long discussions both with Google and Amazon on that topic. Uh, the, 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 there are two, two things that are missing to do that. Because, because f first of all, to make a log-based architecture, you need to be able to persist data forever. Uh, because that, that is your record and, and your log can't go away. Uh, which also for Kafka is very different from the way most people use Kafka, because for a lot of use cases, it, it's okay to, to get rid of old data. In our use case, it's not. And the other thing is that this data needs to be uh, ordered, uh, because the assets we publish refer to other assets, and, and the ordering decides which version you're referencing. So, so basically, if, if, this, if we tried to do this with a store that was not ordered, we would have to add all sorts of logic in every consumer to handle the fact that you can get things out of order. Uh, because when, when you have an event-based system, you need to know that you're handling your events in the correct order. 
So I'm I'm actually not aware of any good alternatives to Kafka for, for, for this kind of system. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the New York Times use case. You've got every historical asset and art article from the New York Times in the log. How is everything arranged in that big log? So ba- basically, like I mentioned, we are publishing assets uh, in a normalized model. Uh, so that that what what that means is it's it's very similar to a typical relational database, in that we have uh, different types of assets uh, and those reference each other. Uh, so we we have uh, one asset type is what we call times tags, uh, which are essentially concepts we use to tag uh, content to tell us what this content is about. Uh, that's a separate asset type. Uh, we have things like images and video. Uh, we have different types of articles. Uh, we have slideshows. There's a whole range of different types. And all, all of these assets can reference each, o- it, each other in different ways. And the way we're publishing this is both uh, at the same time chronologically and uh, topologically. Uh, so basically every asset is published uh, according to its uh, to publication date but it's also published in such a way that any asset referenced by another asset comes before that asset on the log. Mm. Uh, And more importantly, if an article references an image, when you consume that article, you know that the version of the image is the previous version of the image you saw on the log. There's no explicit version numbers of anything. It's it's all according to the the order it it goes on Kafka. Everything in Kafka at the New York Times is on a single partition. Explain what a partition is in Kafka. Yeah, so so a partition is basically a uh, a separate log in a way, a separate file on on the disk. So so lo- like I mentioned, wh- when you write something to Kafka, it's a an actual file on the disk uh, which the assets are uh, appended to. Uh, and what that means is that you're limited in how fast you can publish based on how much, how quickly you can write to that single file. And one way of scaling that is to use what Kafka called partitions. So a partition is basically just another file uh, that holds a partition of the data. Uh, so if, if you have a topic, you can say this topic should have Uh, 16 uh, partitions, and then there will be 16 files, and you have some partitioning algorithm that decides for each asset which partition it goes on. What Uh, are the advantages of using partitions? The the advantage of using partitions is that it lets you scale things up. Uh, So you can then consume... First of all, you can write more at a higher rate, uh, and you can also consume in parallel. So instead of having one consumer consuming the topic, you can have you can divide it out on multiple consumers that can each uh, consume one partition each. So it, 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 it's basically a way of scaling. Right. So if you had a huge, high-throughput logging system, like you were logging all the data from an IoT factory, uh, you know, a factory with all these sensors and stuff, and you wanted to log all of these pieces of data, and you wanted to get them all buffered up in Kafka, and then you wanted to pull them all into some centralized analytics tool, then 
you could imagine wanting to partition the topic of that logging data so that the uh, analytics cluster could uh, parallelize the uh, the influx of of the logging data into the analytics cluster would that be would that be accurate yes okay cool so that kind of brings up my my question is there like the amount of data that is in the historical you know amount of what people have written on the new york times because that's kind of it's, this is like a content a huge historical content uh, buffer in kafka how does that compare to the you know like the type of example i just gave with the with the iot factory uh is is, is does the new york times have a lot of data or is it just not that much compared to some massive logging server. This this is very little data, so it, it's <laughs> uh, order of magnitude 100 gigabytes. And the the reason for that is that this is text written by yeah. humans, and there's, there's a limit to how fast our journalists can produce new new content. Yeah. Uh, so so th- that that's also why we can uh, use just one partition uh, for our case because we we really don't have that much data going into it mm-hmm. uh, but we, we, we do use partitioning for another use case uh, so we uh, the, the log uh, we, we've talked about so far is what we call the monologue so that that's the main source of truth for all the, all the published content and it's a totally ordered single partition uh, Kafka topic uh, but then we also have what we call the denormalized log and that that get back gets back to the normalized model because we have a lot of consumers that actually want a denormalized view of the data where where you basically can read off an article and get everything that's a part of that article uh, and, and uh, elasticsearch is one one example of that uh, that that's how you want to put things into elasticsearch in a, in a denormalized way uh, so what we do is that we have a component called a denormalizer uh, which consumes the monologue, uh, maintains its own uh, local state of, of the latest version of everything published, and then whenever something is updated, it will write the whole asset in a denormalized way to a denormalized log. Uh, so that that means that if an image is updated, every article referencing that image would will be republished. And that that denormalized log is partitioned because once we have the denormalized log, we don't need the total ordering. We only need the ordering relative to e- for for each asset. Hmm. Explain in more detail what is normalized and what is denormalized. What do these two terms mean? So normalized is the model you would have in the relational database, right? right. So you, you you have an article table. Uh, you have an image table, uh, and you have a key uh, for the image. Uh, and in your article table, for every article referencing that image, you would just reference that key instead of copying the data. Uh, and that's how things go on the monologue. Uh, the image, e- even if an image is used by multiple articles, it's published once and then referenced by, by the article. Uh, whereas on the denormalized log, the article and the image and everything else referenced by that article is published together as, as, as one big chunk of data. 
Explain how you use the Kafka Streams API, and maybe just explain what Kafka Streams is. Kafka Streams is basically a Java library that makes it easier to write code that consumes uh, Kafka. Uh, so, so Kafka Streams will handle partitioning and local state and a lot of other things for you. So you can basically just write a streaming application that reads from one source and write to some other source. So we, we, we use Kafka Streams for the denormalizer. So the thing that reads the monologue uh, creates the denormalized view and writes that out to the denormalized log. That, that's a Kafka Streams uh, application. And uh, as opposed to other streaming services like, like uh, Storm, for instance, uh, Kafka Streams is just an API. Uh, so it, 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 it's, it's just, sorry, it's just a library using any code. What are the problems that it's solving that you would otherwise have to hard code yourself? So, so there's a lot of small things. So, for instance, how you when you're reading from a uh, partition log, uh, you will have multiple instances uh, of your application, each reading from a subset of partitions. Uh, and if those, if one of those instances go down, uh, then the partitions handled by that uh, instance would have to be handled by someone else. Uh, and all of that mechanics is handled automatically for you uh, by, by, by uh, Kafka Streams. Uh, it also helps you with something like the denormalizer where you want to have a managed state. So Kafka, uh, Kafka Streams can maintain that state for you in a distributed way uh, along uh, multiple instances of your application. And, and then, it, then it can do a lot more advanced stuff. So for instance, if you want to read two different Kafka topics and do a join across, the, across those streams. That, that's something Kafka streams uh, make very easy. At this point, we've given people a really detailed view into how Kafka is used at the New York Times. Let's talk about how this fits into your bigger infrastructure. Give an overview of how this Kafka pipeline was implemented <clears throat> in terms of engineering time and um, you know, service providers and just the, str- the strategy of getting it deployed? So for, 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 first of all, this is a system that we have been building out uh, over a little, little bit over a year now. So we, we, we started uh, working on this uh, last summer and we are still uh, rolling it out. So we, we, we are live in production now, uh, but we still have a lot of producers and consumers that are still using old APIs that we still have to migrate over. We still have a lot of data sources we also have to migrate over. All of this is uh, deployed to, to Google Cloud, uh, GCP. Uh, so, so the New York Times have had a lot of, uh, we, we have a lot of stuff running on Amazon. Uh, we are now doing a lot of stuff on uh, GCP. Uh, this is one of the first big projects we've done on GCP, so there's been a lot of learning uh, involved in that because GCP is different from Amazon in a lot of uh, interesting ways. The, the actual Kafka cluster on Google is running on uh, compute instances, uh, so the Google equivalent to, to EC2 servers. Uh, we Everything else we have is running in Kubernetes. Uh, we've considered if we want to run uh, Kafka in Kubernetes as well, but we have decided not to do 
that for now at least. It seems to be more complicated than just running compute instances, and we don't see any obvious benefits from that. Hmm. But that, that's an on, ongoing consideration. And I know, I know a lot of people do run Kafka in Kubernetes, so it's certainly possible. What, uh, what are the advantages that those people get out of it? That's a good question. I think one, one argument from our perspective is that since we run everything else in Kubernetes, it would be convenient to have Kafka there as well, just, mm. just for, for operations purposes and being able to manage everything. Did you uh, consider giving the responsibilities of Kafka to a managed Kafka provider, like a Confluent type of company? Yes. So, so basically, Confluent uh, have now what they call uh, Confluent Cloud, which mm-hmm. is a uh, managed Kafka. Uh, un- unfortunately, it's still only available on Amazon, oh. and we want to run it on Google. So, if if they decide to run this uh, on Google, then that's something we will definitely seriously consider because I don't. I, I don't. I don't particularly want to manage Kafka if we don't have to. It's not exactly the New York Times competitive strength to be managing a Kafka cluster. No, uh, it, it's not. And it, we have have a strategy that we want to use managed services whenever we can, and we and we do that for all, almost everything else. Kafka is an exception. Okay, so that brings up a good point because this is something I try to explore on the podcast a lot: is build versus buy. Are there other areas of your infrastructure where you sometimes say to yourself, "This makes no sense that we're managing this, and in five years we should absolutely be able to plug into a managed provider." I I think most of the things we're we're doing. So we we, we, (laughs) okay. We come from a background where we used to have, uh, well, actually still have uh, our own data centers. That's something we're migrating away from, uh, and we have had services running on Amazon now for a good number of years. And basically, we want to run everything uh, in the cloud if we can. And when we run things in the cloud, we want to use managed services when we can. Uh, and, And also serverless uh, is, is something we're, we're looking at quite a lot now to see how much we can do with that because I, I ideally we don't want to do operations work that that's not what we want to focus on mm-hmm. uh, from, from from the other perspective most of I think all all the applications we actually run are developed uh, in-house we have our own uh, CMS system. We have most most other things are are made in house, and that's something we want to continue doing because that that is a core co- competency. So, so the the, hmm. the the way we publish information is very important to how quickly we can get uh, new features out and present journalism in a better way. So it's, it's very important uh, to us to actually have that ourselves. So this this is our code that we are writing. What's the feedback loop there between engineers and journalists using that content management system? That feedback loop is quite good. So so we the the part of the way that works for us is that so so the New York Times has has the newsroom, which is basically all all, all the journalists uh, and, and reporters. Uh, and the, and then we have the tech organization. 
which implements uh, all of this. But we, we also have a smaller tech organization inside the newsroom, uh, which is kind of an intermediate between those of us developing the services and, and the journalists and the reporters using it. And, mm. and that, that's a model that works quite well. So I, I, I hear about it quite quickly when something breaks. So I feel like the uh, the New York Times, like my, you know, however you feel about the direction that our politics has gone, uh, I feel like I have a, a renewed sense of respect for uh, old media industries just because of the amount of uh, questionable news sources that have, you know, have found their way into the prominent public opinion. And so it's, you know, we've, we've started to, to really realize, oh, we really need these old institutions that do fact-checking uh, that are very serious about the information that they publish. Have you felt a enlivened sense of responsibility or, or a weight of responsibility in your own job uh, since perhaps the 2016 election or just since the rise of questionable news sources on the internet? Yes. I mean, this is a big part of the reason why people want to work at the New York Times is because we're clearly doing good work here. This has an actual purpose for society. That's a good kind of job to have where it's so... It's not like a startup where you have to invent some mission for what you're doing. It's very obvious why we're doing what we're doing. That's very nice. And you wake up Feeling feeling inspired on a regular basis, I'm sure. Do you just say, okay, it's time to go, and do the job of bringing you know a sense of truth to these you know to the people? I guess that that's not my first thought in the morning now, <laughs> okay, but uh, right. I, 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 I get your point. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, all right. Well, just to close off, you know, we got a couple more minutes. But what are you working on right now? What are the big technical challenges uh, at the New York Times? So, so from my perspective, the big focus now, which will probably take most of next year, is to migrate uh, all the additional systems we have over to, to the new publishing pipeline. Mm. Uh, and that, that, that's a lot of work. So, so we have uh, our, our legacy uh, publishing API has, I, I think, still about 50 uh, different clients. All of them have to be migrated over to this uh, new platform. Mm. And then we also have a lot of work uh, on the content side. What we're seeing is that when you have almost now 170 years of content uh, and a large number of different systems and file formats, uh, to, to take all that content and correctly put that into a single schema is not easy to do. Uh, because there's a lot of complexities uh, in how data has been used. Uh, there's, there's a lot of there's a lot of inconsistencies between different systems where fields uh, seem like they're the same thing, but they're really not. We have a lot of issues with our CMS system where uh, the data in in the database is not what we thought it would be uh, because it's. 10 years old, and this, it's been written over a long period of time. Uh, and the, some of the data was written when there was some bug uh, that has long since been resolved, but the data is still there. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of details to, to uh. resolve uh, with, with, with all of this. 
Well, I wish you the best of luck with that data cleaning and with the continued migration. And I hope that the cloud service providers are able to eventually take a lot of the work out off your hands. Thank you. I hope so, too. Okay, Berge. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Wow.